Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. We pick up where we left off. Remember last time, Jesus had been baptized, driven out into the wilderness, and he began his public ministry by calling four disciples, two sets of brothers. We pick up the story, verse 21, Mark chapter 1, verse 21. Listen. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand, lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer your cleansing for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but he was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Well, if you like your stories with action and movement and a quickly developing plot, then you will like the Gospel of Mark. 
Mark jumps right in and lets us know the four disciples uh, come along with Jesus and are quickly swept into a kind of whirlwind of ministry on Jesus' part to the point where they're left trying to catch up and, and to understand what Jesus is even all about. And that's kind of Mark's point here. You see, we have the advantage as we approach the Gospel of Mark. We have the advantage of knowing how the story ends. The original audience to whom Mark is writing would also know that. Because standing in front of them are the very people who have come to new life along with them who have proclaimed the gospel to them of the death and resurrection of this Jesus. And they've put their faith in him. Mark is writing to people who have embraced the gospel of God. They would understand that gospel is wrapped up in Jesus of Nazareth. They would understand and come to understand the crowds we meet here in chapter 1, crowds that stampede virtually to, to be near Jesus, to bring their sick and demon-possessed to be healed by Jesus. These kinds of crowds will later be replaced by rallies against Him. Crowds that will demand that He be killed. Mark's original audience, and, and we will come to understand by the end of the story, Jesus is not going to be embraced as the kind of hero he is in chapter 1. He's going to be rejected and ridiculed, condemned and crucified, nailed to a cross, but then rise from the dead. He will be victorious over sin and Satan, over death and disease and demons. And so one of the great questions I want you to have in the back of your minds as we work our way through the Gospel of Mark is very simply this. Why? Why do crowds and individuals turn so quickly and so violently from enthusiastic support here to equal, equally enthusiastic condemnation by the end? What is it about Jesus that makes it impossible for people who meet him or who hear or see him act, what makes it impossible for them not to react? What is it about Jesus that makes us or expects and demands from us and evokes in us a kind of response? Mark is going to answer that question or let that question unfold, really, over the course of his gospel just not yet today. And yet the events we cover today are hints of the kinds of victory and victories Jesus will accomplish in the end. What Jesus does here in healing and in casting out demons and teaching with authority, those are all good things. Those are all signs of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in Jesus, His Son. They're the kinds of things he will accomplish in his death and resurrection. They're the kinds of things he's going to make fully, embracingly, universally clear when he returns. But we'll come to see here the, the, the same crowds that are going to be calling for his crucifixion are 
looking for a kind of Santa Claus circus clown savior. Someone who will satisfy all their needs, heal their diseases, fill their bellies, defeat their enemies, dazzle them with never-before-seen miracles. Jesus will do that and more, but in ways they could never imagine. And they would never imagine that the path to being a disciple of Jesus, to following Him, is going to travel through the cross. Both for Him, and as He promises, for those who will follow Him. All this is to say that we're going to meet a few people in uh, the stories we've just read today who don't understand yet. Some of them never will. But some will go on to take up the work Jesus began to do, and they will go on to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, calling us and others to repent and to believe this gospel. Not everyone in the story will get it. Amazingly, it seems the evil spirits are the ones who have the clearest understanding. But I think we're helped here as we read these early stories in the Gospel of Mark by the British theologian Morna Hooker. She writes this, We need to remember that here Mark is letting us into secrets which remain hidden throughout most of the drama from the great majority of characters in the story. Mark's letting us know that there's a a good storyline coming, and most of the characters in the story don't understand the details of the story as it's unfolding. And that's going to be true as we work our way through the gospel. It is certainly true in chapter 1. So this morning I want us to cover these four separate episodes in Mark's drama and point out for especially this, that in every one Jesus acts, and in every one others react. Jesus acts, others react. First, we meet Jesus and his four friends in Capernaum. Capernaum is a town in the northwest edge of uh, the Sea of Galilee. It's roughly 20 or so miles to the north, north and the east from Nazareth, where Jesus had been raised. Capernaum seems to be the hometown of uh, Peter and Andrew. It becomes a kind of home base for the early stages of Jesus' ministry up in the northern region of Galilee. It's likely the synagogue they go to is the one uh, Peter and Andrew were a part of. It seems like it's not far from Peter's home or Andrew's home as well. And notice while they're there, Jesus does two notable things. He teaches and he casts out an unclean spirit out of a man who stood up and disrupted the synagogue service. Both acts, the teaching and the casting out of the evil spirit, evoke the same kinds of responses. Imagine this, people came for a, an ordinary, regular synagogue service. They're struck, they've got a guest preacher that day, and he's not like their other preachers. He preaches with authority. Notice Mark doesn't describe the content of his sermon or his teaching. 
But I think we're to assume it's the same message Mark had attributed to Jesus back in verses 14 and 15. That Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God himself. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in me. In any case, we should especially notice the result, which is Mark's primary interest here. They were astonished and amazed. Again, the content is less in view than the manner. Jesus wasn't your average rabbi or scribe, insightful or learned as they might have been, teaching from what we now call the Old Testament and teaching about God. Jesus teaches to them as God, as the one to whom that entire Old Testament had pointed and of whom the law and the prophets and the Psalms spoke. And while they are still being astonished by his teaching, notice Mark just pushes forward, they're still being astonished by his teaching, a man at the back stands up and cries out to Jesus. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come? Have you come from Nazareth to Capernaum? Or have you come from heaven to earth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Well, the short answer to the question, have you come to destroy us, is yes. This is among the reasons Jesus came to engage Satan, to engage his armies, to destroy the enemy. And along with others, I'm persuaded this is not on the part of the evil spirit who has taken over this man and who calls out from the back. It's not a confession of faith in Jesus as the Holy One of God. It's the expectation of a confrontation. It's a challenge to Jesus. This is going to be a contest. And the unclean spirit calls out to Jesus and names him as a way of, he thinks, gaining the upper hand. But again, it's interesting though, isn't it, that the evil unclean spirit recognizes the identity of Jesus before anyone else, it seems, in the story does. And I'm just trying to imagine this moment. You've come to an average, ordinary synagogue service, Sunday morning worship service. You've got a guest preacher. He's a little better than your average guy. But everything's just going along quietly. The preacher might occasionally pause and give a moment, and, but then press on when a small child make some noises in the back or when your cell phone goes off. But what do you do standing here? What do you do if somebody stands up and starts yelling at you? Here's what Jesus does. Shut up, get out. That simple. He rebukes him. The unclean spirit takes one last crack at it. He convulses the man. He cries out with a shriek. He comes out and he left him. 
Again, notice the reaction as I think we are supposed to. The people are amazed. Again, there's that authority thing again. This man teaches with authority. But he commands unclean spirits and they leave. They obey him. Is it any surprise then that that episode ends at verse 28? At once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Trust me, everyone went home from synagogue that day and talked to their friend who didn't go to synagogue or who didn't go to that synagogue and said, you're not going to believe what happened at church this morning, at my church. You're not going to believe it. Let me tell you. Mark moves the story along. We get to the second episode. Jesus and his friends slide on over to Peter's house for Sunday dinner, Sabbath dinner. Jesus is told the reason uh, Peter's mother-in-law was not at church that morning is because she was sick. She's laid up with a fever. In case you're wondering, there is no mention anywhere in Scripture of uh, Peter's wife or whether or not he had children. Just this. And Mark distills this tender and triumphant moment almost down to just a few verbs. He came. He took her by the hand. He lifted her up. The fever left. She began to serve them. Jesus acts, and she reacts. He heals her. She serves them. And then the sun sets. And if you're a Sabbatarian, and we're going to see this coming to play in a few stories down the road here, if you're a Sabbatarian, then the sun sets and the only thing your scribes and teachers at your synagogue tell you is that you must obey the Sabbath and not do any work on the Sabbath. Then you wait until the sun sets and then you think, all right, now I can go. And you bring all your sick friends and your loved ones and you rush over to Peter's house because you know Jesus is there. You can imagine Jesus and his friends sitting around a table enjoying a meal, rejoicing in Peter's mother-in-law's restoration, maybe in her great cooking. Crowds begin to gather at the door. Listen, the whole city was gathered at the door, having brought with them their sick, their suffering. And Jesus heals them. We'll say more about this in upcoming sermons, but notice there's a distinction here between the sick and those oppressed by demons. They are different conditions, and they receive from Jesus different solutions. Jesus heals one category of people, the sick, and he casts out the demons or the evil spirits or the unclean spirits from the others, the demon-possessed. He heals one, exercises, exorcises the other. We have no idea what time Jesus got to bed that night, but it must have been late. And that brings us to the next episode, again, as Mark moves the story along. Very early in the morning, while it is still dark, Jesus sneaks away. He heads to a desolate place, to pray. 
And this is right in the middle of having been told he went to a desolate place, wilderness-like place where he was tempted by Satan the first time. And that he's going to end this chapter in desolate places and people are going to have to come and find him. Mark describes him as going to a wilderness-like setting, and this time he goes to pray. Again, nothing is said here of his reasons for wanting to pray or about the content of his prayers. But simply, he went to be in communion and fellowship with his Father in solitude. As what I think we must take as an ongoing commitment on the part of Jesus to be doing his Father's will in union and fellowship with his Father, empowered as he is by the Spirit. This is still a Trinitarian gospel work. The twist in the story is that Peter and the others wake up and discover Jesus is gone. Who knows what they might have thought or where they imagined he would have gone or why, but they go on a frantic search for him. And it seems Peter is the voice here who speaks and says in a kind of rebuke, what are you doing here? Where have you been? Don't you know everyone is looking for you? I suspect he knew that. What are you doing out here hiding out from all those people who need you, who want you? Again, we need to remember here that Mark is letting us into secrets which remain hidden throughout most of the drama from the great majority of characters in the story. At this early stage, the disciples, these four at least, the disciples do not understand how Jesus could walk away from the fame and the acclaim and the great need. Why would he want to slip away under the cover of darkness to a desolate place to find a moment to have quiet conversation with his father? They don't seem to understand why Jesus would want to sneak away from so many people who are in such deep need. Who are, they're just starting to discover could be helped and blessed by Jesus who could be healed who could be freed from their demon possession. Notice Jesus' response. He doesn't say, well, let's go back then and have them line up and come through the walk-in clinic. He simply gently rebukes them and says, let's go on to the next set of towns that I might do what? Preach there as well. You see, it was not Jesus' ultimate goal, or it was, it was not his primary goal, simply to beat back sickness and disease. That is certainly, do not miss this, it's certainly swept up in his glorious work of salvation and redemption and restoration. 
It's a significant part of his ministry, a significant sign, or significant signs of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in Jesus. But he had come to preach, to draw people to himself and to his own Father in heaven through their repentance of their sins and their faith and trust in him. He knew, as his disciples did not yet seem to know, that the people flocking to him were coming for the benefits he could give them. Not really for him. So he traveled around Galilee. What does he do? He preaches and he casts out demons. He will still cast out demons. He will still will come to find perform other healing miracles, and more. His primary interest, though, is to preach. And in the last episode, we meet a leper. Jesus is approached by this man who should not have approached him. He kneels before him, that is, the man kneels before Jesus. He pleads with him. It's some kind of act of faith or belief on the part of this leper. He's heard something about Jesus and the power he has. He says to him, it seems, uh, only this, if you will, you can make me clean. Notice he understands Jesus has the ability. The question is, does Jesus have the will or desire? You can make me clean if you want to. And in addition to whatever physical suffering leprosy brought this man, he's a social outcast, he's stigmatized, disenfranchised, he's unclean, unable to enter into God's presence at the temple, for example. He's not fit. He's unclean, like the spirits are unclean. He's really intended to be in a kind of self-quarantine. And it's not just that there's a concern about contagion, but contamination. He approaches Jesus, and Jesus responds. Again, in Mark's style, he moves the story along. He stretched out his hand, he touched him, and spoke. I will be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him, and he's made clean. And notice a few things about this little interaction at this point. Jesus is moved by pity, possibly out of indignation at the condition of this poor man and the effects of the fall, but more likely out of pity, compassion. And then he reaches, and he touches. And the act that would ordinarily make him unclean is instead, accompanied by his words, the act that makes the man clean and whole. It's a great picture, by the way, of what else Jesus will do down the road. If I can borrow from the words of Sinclair Ferguson, it's as if Jesus says to him, I will become by choice what you are by nature. 
What a simple, glorious response on the part of Jesus. I do have the ability, watch, but I also have the desire. I will be clean. Jesus adds to this a, I hope you're picking this up by now. He commands the man to be quiet. Do what you have to do, go to the priest, make your sacrifices, that'll be a testimony or a witness to them. Possibly even meaning that will testify to them about who actually healed you because in spite of everything Leviticus 13 and 14 says, no one really ever gets healed from leprosy, at least not because someone just said, be clean. Go to the priest, do your Levitical duty there that you might be restored to the community. But other than that, don't tell anyone what just happened here. He's commanded the evil spirits to be silent. He's gone out to a silent place. He's told his disciples he's going to move on to get away from all the fame and notoriety. And now, without even telling us, on Mark, without even telling us whether or not the man went to the priest, he, he lets us know that contrary to this explicit command from Jesus, the man begins to spread the news. What are we to think of that? Our first impulse is to say, well, of course he would. This is gospel proclamation. This is good news. And yet, he's defying a clear command of Jesus, and he makes it more difficult for Jesus to do his work. Jesus can't openly enter a town anymore. He has to go to the edges, to the desolate places, and, and even there people still find him. We'll take a moment and review what just happened in these four episodes. Jesus is preaching and teaching. He's casting out demons and healing. And he does this with authority that's recognized by the people. He's developing a reputation. Crowds are coming out to him. He's becoming famous. And he's demonstrating his authority over demons He's giving whole bodies to people who are sick. And Jesus is doing this in the power, we know, of the Holy Spirit, engaging evil spiritual forces who cannot be seen but by their effects. And when unclean spirits take over the personality of a person they possess, they are, we are learning, no match for the Spirit of God who has endowed the Son with power. Their presence and power are clearly both inferior to and incompatible with the power of the Spirit of Christ. And Jesus is overcoming these effects of the fall and of sin, the sickness, the demon possession, and he's doing it with a kind of authority no one has ever seen before. His reputation is growing. People are astonished. They're amazed. They flock to him. They come with every other sick person they know. Every action in the story has a reaction. And most of the people here, possibly with the exception of the evil spirits, hardly recognize who Jesus actually is. 
Again, it will come to us much, much later in the story as he goes to the cross, as he's raised from the dead, as he does those, the greatest, most ultimate actions of his ministry that will also evoke a reaction. The very simple question here today is for every action of Jesus that demands and evokes a reaction, what is yours? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these stories in the early part of the ministry of your son. Would you fill us with amazement awe and wonder, but that all flow out of a deep recognition that this is the Son of God, the one who came to be the good news, the gospel, who gave his life, who became willingly what we are by nature that we might be restored to fellowship with you. Would you fill us with the same desire Jesus had to talk to you and commune with you in prayer? Would you convince us of your power and your desire to heal and restore and to make us whole? Thank you, our God, for your great victories over sin and Satan, for death and disease and demons. Fill us with awe, with joy, with delight, with a gentle, joyful submission. Stir up in us by your Spirit every kind of reaction to which you call us, including a deep and abiding trust in your son. We ask it all in his name. And we all say together, amen.